Today is October 8th, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today's guest is Munya Elihali. Uh, Munya is an associate professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering and the Center for Language and Speech Processing at the Johns Hopkins University. Hi, Munya. Hello. Um, Munya's uh, work focuses on the auditory equivalent of object recognition. How does the auditory system separate out sounds that should be treated as part of a unit, for example, sounds that come from the same source and how it can process many of those objects at the same time. Around the room we have uh, UTSA faculty, Todd Troyer. Hello. And Alfonso Apicella. Hi. And me, I'm your host, standing in for Salma Karashi while she is on sabbatical, Charlie Wilson. So. Uh, Monia, maybe you could start by explaining what it is that's special about auditory object recognition, why it's unique, say, compared to the same problem in visual system uh, or olfactory system, and also what may be the same across these visual and auditory modalities. So um, off the bat, one of the challenges with working with auditory objects is that there is a big debate as to what is an auditory object. So one obvious... Um, definition could be the source, the physical source. So sounds that emanate from different physical sources can be thought of as different objects. But sometimes we perceive um, different sounds that may be coming from different sound sources as one common object. Sometimes it's, for example, when you're listening to an orchestra, you may not be able to distinguish two violins that are playing in tune. You can hear the group of violins together but getting distinguishing them perceptually, you may be aware that there are multiple violins, but you may not be able to focus on one versus the other. And so defining auditory objects is a research question in and of itself. What does an auditory object mean? It has been suggested, and so the term auditory stream has been proposed as opposed to auditory object to refer to the perceptual entity that is represented in your brain as a distinct unit. So, but um, to you know, so to some extent, we can define an object as that stream in your brain that is perceptually grouped away from the background. So, when you now compare auditory and visual perception in um, in natural scenes or in cluttered scenes, there are many elements of commonalities. So there are um, sort of psychology studies that go back to the 1800s that study the principles that the brain uses to distinguish different objects. So for example, uh, a concept of proximity. So elements that are close together would tend to be grouped together more so than elements that are far apart. That's certainly true for the visual system. It's true for the auditory system. Two tones that have very, that are very close to, in frequency would tend to be grouped together and perceived as grouped as opposed to ones that are far apart. So there are a number of principles that have been established that are common between auditory and visual perception. The challenge in the auditory system is that 
auditory inputs don't have a spatial layout that is already um, present when the, the sound come into into the ear, and so the the auditory system has to process information both from each ear, but also combine information across ears to distinguish the the spatial layout of the scene. The sounds um, evolve over time, and so the processing has to take into account the temporal structure of the signal. That is true to some extent in visual scenes, but not necessarily in a static visual scene where the sound objects are there and you can gaze back and forth and analyze the the structure of the visual scene. And um, one um, other aspect that is crucial is that defining what an auditory object, and that's what makes this whole debate about what is an object challenging, is there is no natural shape of what an object is. So unlike a you know a visual object that has a contour and surface, the visual the auditory object does not have these kinds of properties. The an auditory object is really a combination of acoustic cues that somehow share some properties together that are probably different than properties of the other objects in the scene. And that's probably what the brain is using to distinguish them from each other. And so part of the challenge is to define these properties to explore the neural processes that underlie how does the brain actually extract these cues and put them together to perceive them as different objects. What is the role mm-hmm. of the midbrain mm-hmm. compared to the auditory cortex in these? So in in one view, um, there is an argument that precortical stages play a role in extracting these acoustic cues. So frequency has been already analyzed, so it's not auditory cortex that in coast frequency. So a lot of the the acoustic features are being extracted precortically, including spatial cues that are being extracted. Now the the argument and that's a topic of ongoing research is is the job of auditory cortex to put these cues back together to now start forming perceptual groupings. That's sort of something that we're trying to, to look at and other people are trying to look at is because a lot of the acoustic information has is already being extracted precortically. Certainly the midbrain has a rich representation of you know frequency of temporal modulations. How does the auditory cortex now come to build on this feature representation to put it back together? That's why a lot of studies are now you know proposing this idea that the role of auditory object is really to represent auditory uh, auditory cortex represents auditory objects, which means sort of now putting back these cues together in some way, shape, or form that would allow our brain to tell them apart from each other. But if you look at the receptive fields of auditory cortex neurons, mm-hmm. they are uh, they're fragments. They're mm-hmm. auditory fragments, sort exactly. of the way receptive fields in visual cortex are visual fragments. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really see objects in those mm-hmm. receptive fields. So isn't there a I mean, that's a problem for visual cortex. It's a problem for everybody, I guess, who's trying to look at receptive mm-hmm. fields and and understand object recognition. Do we have a lead? Do we have a, some kind of idea about what binds together? That's the right mm-hmm. word. I think right. that's the technical exactly. word. For what binds together the receptive fields that represent a single object? Um, the, the the short answer is no. We the, Yes, the representation in auditory cortex is just fragmented, but... Um, we know that there are things that would modulate an object that reflect on the modulations in auditory cortex. The the pieces that we also don't 
have missing in this puzzle is sort of more secondary cortical areas. So unlike visual cortex, where we know a lot about what V1 does, V2 does, and you know, as you go into higher visual areas, in the in the auditory system, when you start going into higher auditory areas, the sensory representation becomes more um, difficult to discern. The receptive fields are harder, and sort of up to a certain point, you cannot get receptive field representations. That's does, good, that, does that mean that the, the object has been formed? I don't think that has been established. So all we know is r manipulations of um, paradigms in behavior that would induce changes at the level of an object can be seen at the level of auditory cortex. What that means in terms of that unit that binds these receptive fields together, that I, I think that's a piece that is really certainly missing in this puzzle. But in, your, in, a, in a model, you mm -hmm. don't necessarily have to know the electrophysiology about exactly. how the brain does it, but you can put it together. In a model, you do that. So yes. how do you do it in the model? So in the model, what we're doing is we're looking at these receptive fields and looking how they change together, how they co-vary, this idea of temporal coherence. So if, if I'm paying attention to or just representing a, a sound object, let's say a human voice, the assumption is that the pitch information and the formant that's coming from the the the, the phonemes that are being produced are covariant together. So if I'm looking at different frequency regions that are coming from that same source, they will be going on and off in a correlated fashion. So the way the model does it is it looks across these receptive fields and it looks at how their temporal response, sort of they change over time in their response. And so the elements that co-vary would be grouped together, bound together as one object. Now, the key thing I should emphasize is we're not looking at instantaneous correlations. These are longer-term correlations, correlations over the course of a few hundreds of milliseconds. So the elements don't have to be instantaneously varying, but as long as they co-vary over the course of tens of hertz, then the, uh, the model binds them together and decides that this is one unit, and that would be picked out separately from the other units. Which so the model has to look backwards in time. Can't mm -hmm. look forward in time. No. Even a model can't do Correct. that. Yes. And uh, look backwards in time mm -hmm. and find how things are correlated. Mm -hmm. But then how does, it, uh, how does it incorporate the next time sample right. into it? So the way the model works is it integrates information over the past. And if it sees elements that are changing over these, these you know, hundreds of milliseconds time, stamp, it binds them together, decides that they are the same object, and based on that, it predicts how the next instances are going to look like. It's not necessarily looking into the future, it's just making a prediction. So that's where this inference process comes. So it just makes a prediction, you know, I'm listening to this female talking, I've gotten a sense of what her pitch and what her phoneme and her pace of talking is, and so I can predict what the next time instance is going to look like within some with some uncertainty but I have some prediction now once that actual sound comes in at that moment in time it gets contrasted with that prediction if the prediction is correct matches that means that next instance belongs to that same object so it stays with it if the prediction is incorrect then the model has to readjust its parameters and so the model makes this continuous prediction as it goes taking into account the past what it's trying to pay attention to, and then correlating that with the present. And so the balance of these two is how the model picks out the elements that match the prediction, as 
part of the same object and ignores anything else. It does not match that prediction as part of the background. And if the prediction is totally wrong, that means that the model has not settled on a proper estimation of that object, and so it adjusts its predictions as it goes. So we're basically having to learn how to recognize all sound objects in real time as we yes. are recognizing them. Exactly, yes. So how about a long, longer-term kind of learning? Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of know something about mm-hmm. some sounds that have happened in my right. environment mm-hmm. in the past. Right. So that's something that is not currently implemented in the model, but that's certainly an idea that can build on the same, maybe not exactly the same principles in terms of instantaneous um, predictions or inference, but it's a knowledge that can bias how we put together sound elements. So a voice that is familiar is encoded by its acoustic properties that we have come to learn over time. And so having that knowledge tells us something about how to bind together certain components of the sound. And so we are not incorporating that right now, but that's something that I can envision adds a a second layer of predictions based on what we know and what we've been hearing recently to help do the prediction. So, and then the the binding over time. Basically, there is a learning mechanism that is in important or required for these object recognition? So I'm not calling it learning okay. per se because, well, I'm not calling it learning because uh-huh. the object is not, um, you know, it's not, we're not maintaining some, mem- I mean, we're make- maintaining some short-term memory of the, of the object, okay. but I don't want to call it, you know, learning in the sense of the model is now mm-hmm. learning because, because the model can respond to any new sound. It's not like it became only you know, response, but it's going to take it time to adjust. So if, uh, if if sound A stops being there and then sound B shows up, it's going to take it time to build that there. short-term memory of sound B before it starts responding. And that's something that is not completely unexpected from human perception and behavior. We know that in these in experiments where you present listeners with different sound objects, it does take time. There is this build-up time over which, you know, listeners are, you know, probably not as good at detecting a target early on, but get better at it later on. That implies that somewhere in our brain, we are collecting statistics about that sound that we're hearing, and we're doing something with these statistics. So we get better at, say, target detection over time than we would, you know, later in time than we would do earlier in time. So maintaining that, those priors or that memory is something that is happening. Whether it's happening the way we're proposing is happening in the model is, you know, is a subject of debate, but it certainly is happening. There is that temporal accumulation of evidence over time. Yes. In some sense, there's a ton of past learning embedded in the model in terms of the receptive fields. Correct. Right? So in terms of... So the interesting thing about, I think, where that model gets to... Mm-hmm. So there's one kind of learning that people segregate from other kinds of learning, I guess, is that you're just learning the statistics of your environment, right? You're just learning some sensory statistics, what tends to be out there, and you have to learn what what that is. Uh, And then, in some ways, the most basic level, that's encoded in all the receptive fields. Mm -hmm. And then, what you're doing is you're doing a kind of a short-term adaptive version of 
uh, emphasizing some of the statistics that you've seen, right? Uh, and then you're kind of heightening those statistics, but it's still kind of a sensory filter idea. It's now just an adaptive filter idea. Uh, and the interesting thing, and it seems to me where where it comes in, it's part of the definition of the auditory object, mm -hmm. is that whether that, how that interfaces when you start to have discrete objects and learning associations between objects and mm -hmm. learning to recognize objects like people often think of when they think of learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and the f you have a different language than that in the model. The model mm -hmm. is like a lot of still kind of engineering-based uh, mm -hmm. filter-ish kind of thing and how you interface them is really a interesting challenge. No, I mean you certainly touched on that idea of the built-in learning in the model and we certainly have done um, some work where we show that if you want to build sort of a model of auditory cortex just based on natural sound so if you just decide on some coding principles that you think auditory cortex cares about for example this idea of a coherence sort of maintaining a representation over time, we actually have shown that you can derive receptive fields similar to the ones you see in primary auditory cortex in a mammalian system just from a data, sort of a data-driven learning of these receptive fields. And so that the idea is certainly true that there is an inherent learning that whether that's how it happened or, you know, developmentally that's how it works, I don't know, but the receptive fields in auditory cortex are representing the, the, the statistics of natural sounds to some extent. And so in that sense, yes, they are learning something about what is to be expected of the world that surrounds us. And then based on that, now you come into sort of the, the fast learning, if you want to call it, or adaptation to actually representing different auditory objects. But I do agree that we're not defining objects as sort of these distinct tokens because now you, you're really trying to make the leap from the acoustics to this, this, this discrete unit. So when I say a human voice, that's a whole set of acoustic cues, you know, just like a, an animal vocalization. It's not this, you know, this motif. It's, that's a discrete unit. But when it comes to the actual representation, how do you represent that? You represent that with a, with a pitch, with a spectral profile, with a time frequency. So that how do you abstract from these acoustics to the to that abstract you know unit is not something that we're doing in the model but it's an interesting question one of the the debates about defining auditory objects is that, which i guess uh, tries to parallel what goes on in visual perception is one of the definition of an object is it's invariant to shift and translation so you would see the same object whether it's here or there um to some extent, in the auditory world, um, it's a little, you know, it's a little tricky. I mean, you can manipulate certain aspects. You can make it louder or softer, and you would assume that the same representation emerges. Um, but then we can really debate what does it mean to make an auditory object shift invariant or... Well, a chord stays mm -hmm. the same chord yes. with an octave shift, so mm -hmm. that's some kind of invariance, isn't it? Absolutely. Is that a primary auditory cortex thing, or is that not? <clears throat> Um, I am um, hesitant to answer because then it gets into the, sort of the representation of harmonics, which is a, a you know a sub debate within the debate of encoding that goes on in auditory cortex. There has been studies that have found a part in auditory cortex, an area that represents sort of harmonicity, 
and the argument there is that you do get that representation yeah. that is invariant. So, to some extent, maybe I guess the answer would be yes. Well, that's pretty high on your staff. Mm -hmm. But I, I'd like to uh, shift us back sure. to this ad adaptive, th adaptive thing, adaptive filter. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not really should be called mm -hmm. learning. You've been reluctant to mm -hmm. call it learning. But in a way, it's a little bit like um, working memory. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can't keep very many things in working memory. How many things can we keep in this auditory? How many different auditory objects mm -hmm. can I keep track of generally? I mean, so, right. <laughs> so, um, so at the high level, the, there are, there have been studies that argue that we can, you know, maybe track few things, five or six at the same time. From the perspective of the model, the model is defined based on how we define what we're paying attention to. So, in a way, right now the model pays attention, you know, has a foreground and a background. There's nothing in the math that doesn't that preclude us from defining six different elements. It just means more parameters and more things to take account of. But there is an, a, a debate in the in the literature about this idea of maintaining many objects. And there are some um, theories that hypothesize that you really just maintain a foreground and a background. It's just that your ability to switch back and forth is fast enough that you feel that you're maintaining oh, different really? elements. But you really just can attend to. So that would be a footlight rather yes. than a spotlight of it. Yes. <laughs> is this true also for musicians? What is? The things to only keep track of four, six objects at a time. I don't know if the studies have actually looked at musically trained. Um, I don't know the answer to that. But. Um, because there is a lot of mm -hmm. study that seems that you know musicians by training their brain mm -hmm. they have more capability, mm -hmm. correct? Because initially you start to discuss about you know the orchestra there are mm -hmm. two different right. ranks and musician the director correct yes. the orchestra mm -hmm. is really pick difference in the sound of a trombone or a right. piano mm -hmm. that is you know basically not in tone with orchestra mm -hmm. how they can do that right so there is definitely yes there there are established facts about changes in the in the in the the coding of sensory information in a mu in, in a musically trained brain versus a, a regular you know um, adult brain, um, I don't know if any studies have actually gone to that extent of looking at like different representations of different objects from musically trained. So I don't know the answer to that. Um, anyway, they're focusing on yes. just one sure. object, mm -hmm. whether it's or or on twelve, mm -hmm. uh, and being able to separate them. Right is a kind of attention process. Mm -hmm. And you have separated attention in, into at least two pieces that mm -hmm. I know of. One right. uh, is sort of a bottom-up kind of attention. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think there's an equivalent of this kind of stuff in visual system, mm -hmm. too, where there's just something happened. Right. And that switches attention. Or top-down, where the, some other part of the brain is saying, I've been listening to the kettle drum, and now I want to listen to the trombone. Mm -hmm. So, um, what, what, how, does, how do these differ from each mm -hmm. other? Are they just in different parts of the system or they work completely different ways? So, so I didn't touch on the bottom-up attention in today's talk, but the idea of bottom-up attention, it's been also called saliency, especially in the visual literature, is sort of a sensory-driven change in the cues that attract your attention. So, when you look at a 
you know, a, a screen with black dots and a red dot is there that would naturally attract your attention. So you would tend to, you know, if you track where people are looking, they look at the salient components of the scene. So we, we've been doing some studies sort of in a similar vein in the auditory domain. The idea is there are elements of an acoustic environment that attract our attention. So the reason we're calling it bottom-up attention or sensory-driven attention is that we're not asking the listener to pay attention to anything in particular. They're just listening to the sound. It's just that there are elements that would naturally pop out. A loud sound is an obvious example. These are mismatches of your adaptive filter. Exactly. Right? So the way it fits with our view of how we represent auditory objects is that these are mismatches. So you're, th those sound elements don't fit the, the model, and so they would stand out. Whether that means a resetting of the system, we know perceptually that that means recruiting top-down attention. So if you ask the subjects, well, did you hear anything salient, they would pinpoint to that moment in time where something changed, and that attracted their attention. So the loud sound played, the gunshot gone off, the, the pitch changed, my voice became male. But, but aren't there things that are, are more salient than others, a lot of the salient things, right? So it's not just, especially in a difference kind of sense, the right. way that's different than your expectation, mm -hmm. there's some ways... Or there's some degree. Yes. There's others, which I don't understand the the difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there's some uh, whether it's just intensity, something. No, or, it's not just. But it, but is there other directions in the space of the space of differences that are some things that are more salient than yes. others? Yes. Right? So it is a greater. So we've done a study where we looked at just judgments of salient. So basically, we played sound to human listeners and we just had them say, did you hear something salient or not? And what we did is when we manipulated different parameters. So loudness was one of them, pitch, timbre, so you know, we're playing violins and a piano shows up. Um, and so all these dimensions do in, you know, induce this sort of salient percept, but not to the same degree. And what was all more interesting is that the combinations of features non-linearly combine. So a change in pitch would tend to be more um, off the top of my head, but I think a change in pitch would tend to be um, perceived as more salient, even if its loudness is, lo is not as big a change in, in loudness. So they do combine in that space, in that high-dimensional space, in a non-linear way. And we've tested that with many types of sounds, with, with uh, musical instruments, with uh, human speech. So we, we didn't give them English, but we used Japanese speech, where the idea is that they would not be used in linguistic information, but just based on the acoustic cues of speech. And so we would manipulate, we'd put tokens that change in pitch and timbre. And timbre is also a graded space, so the distinction between a, a cello and a violin is not the same as a violin and an oboe. So all these cues grade how we view saliency, but from the perspective of this idea of predictive coding, it really boils down when we can use the same mo model to when your model makes a prediction and that mismatches the input, that degree of mismatch does correlate with the degree of your perception of saliency. So are there saliencies in, in time? Like pre, pre kind of pre-wired saliencies in time, like with uh, exact rhythmic things or something like that? Because right. all the dimensions that you're talking about are 
our instantaneous Dying. thing yeah. for mm -hmm. for a tone or a transition right. short in time mm -hmm. and the whole part of the whole point of this mm -hmm. was that the auditory objects are extended in time so so, so that's um, um, so we have another study I actually have uh, somebody who's working on this so we've done this with more natural sounds so we didn't manipulate them ourselves we just went into a cafeteria and just recorded sounds and went to the streets and so there are certainly manipulations that are over longer time periods. We're in the process of analyzing them. So if you look over a local time window, you would assume that people would feel that these are there's something salient. But when you play it in the general context, people don't feel it salient, maybe because it fits in with the, let's say, a phone ringing. So the first ring is salient and maybe the second one, but if it keeps ringing for a while, that's not salient anymore. But that still can be a short-term thing. There are even longer-term time constants, and that's something that we are not, you know, we don't have a good handle on, but we're in the process of analyzing for sure. So the definitely the time constants of integration for what defines an object is an interesting thing because that gets into this topic. And it's not discrete, and it's not like short versus long. It's, um, it's something that, you know, Hopefully this study that we're working on, but I assume there is need to be a lot more study of this kind of idea of sort of dependency of representations over longer periods of time. I don't want to let you get away without sure. us talking about practical applications. So the uh, we can't represent it here, mm -hmm. but it's pretty remarkable that your model can take a, a sound landscape that's mm -hmm. got multiple objects in it and pull them out and play them separately. And there must be some incredible applications to that. Mm -hmm. um, are you working on applications? And what yes. please tell us about it? So, um, so we're definitely working on a number of applications. Some feed directly into sort of speech technologies for speech recognition, let's say. Um, we're not working on the recognition part of sort of different, let's say, speech phonemes, but we're working on the idea of can we represent the signal in a more robust way so that if noise is present, it doesn't mask the cues that are important for processing. But one new application that we just started working on is uh, using sound processing for medical applications, for medical diagnosis. So we're collaborating with a team of doctors in the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, and um, the idea there is to build basically a smart stethoscope. So uh, we're building a device where you can record from a lung sound and automatically process the signal coming from the lung and hopefully detect so you know what a normal lung should sound like and can we detect any abnormalities in that in those patterns all while we ignore anything else that can be going on in the environment you know the, the, the patient talking the doctors chatting the phones ringing so when I ignore all of that be able to process the lung sound and pick out any abnormal patterns that emerge so this is now a a new project that we're starting. So the, we, the, the um, team of doctors at the School of Public Health have um, field workers throughout mostly the third world. So they have um, field workers in Africa, in Asia, and South America who are recording sounds from uh, mostly children under five years of age. Pneumonia is one of the, I think, the number one killer of um, children in the world. And so they are recording sounds from these um, children, mostly in remote areas, um, uh, kids who don't have access to high medical expertise. And so they're shipping these sounds over to, 
to us in Baltimore and have these doctors listen to these sounds. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to automate the process. Can we develop these models to make them deployable in the field to actually process these sounds on the fly and flag any abnormalities that would require further medical assistance? So we're pretty excited about well, are you thinking about, uh, are you redoing your receptor fields? <clears throat> so we're, we are tuning them, certainly, yes. The, so far, the, the basic model has worked reasonably well. Its biggest challenge is really the noise. So a lot of these recordings are done, they're not really done in a clinical setting where it's quiet. You really hear cars going by and talking. And so they really, to pick out the lung sound from all that is very challenging. So we're certainly changing a little bit the tuning of the parameters as we're collecting more data. More challenging than the cocktail party problem? It is very challenging because you're trying to now put yourself, get your model to mimic an actual, you know, a trained doctor to listen to only these lung sounds and ignore everything else. And so you're really trying to focus on a small aspect of the signal all while you don't want to ignore everything else because that everything else can be something abnormal in the lung. So you don't want to denoise everything because you know the abnormalities that you would detect sometimes look like a noise, but they're not a noise. You know, a click that you would hear could be just a crackle that you don't want to confuse with just a click that's happening in the environment. So it's it, that's where the challenge comes. Is we're trying to pick these sounds and we're trying to detect abnormal events that we don't necessarily know what they are. I mean, we have some knowledge about what they should sound like, but yeah. There must be lots of applications because there are lots of expert mm -hmm. listeners mm -hmm. whose job is to listen to something and use their expertise. Mm -hmm. And there are two steps to it. One of them is the one that you're already mm -hmm. working on, I guess, and, and have progress on it, which is listening to the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is recognizing what's gone wrong. Yeah. So do you need to have a, a big library of bad lung sounds? Is, so that's how we're doing it right now. So right now, our first pass is we have a library of bad sounds and a versus the good sounds. And we're trying to see how does the model distinguish those two. So that's how we, our first so pass. So even diagnosis, problem. that particular lung sound means this. Uh, there was a guy when I was a kid who mm -hmm. listened to your car and tell you what was going to go wrong with it next. <laughs> yes. And the, this is would be like that. In the same vein, yes. So that's how we're doing it right now. So we're using these sounds to build a library of what bad lung sounds sound like, and we're letting the, the model distinguish these two. But ideally, if you want this to work sort of in an, you know, in the field, you want to be able to detect any abnormality, even the ones that you haven't detected before, because um, right now, you know, when we just compare recordings from different sites, so we have recordings from Asia and um, some from Peru, the because of the quality of the recording and everything else, our library is different from both databases. Even though at the core it's the same kind of acoustic properties, but there is a lot of masking that goes on in sort of how these data is collected. And so how well can we then take this to a different site in Africa and get it to work? We want to be able to not miss any abnormal event that's coming out of these lung sounds. Okay, yeah, so even if I don't know what's wrong with your lung, yes. I can tell there's something, something wrong. Something wrong, exactly. And I should call a doctor. Yes, I mean, it, I think that's the key. We're not trying to, you know, play doctor. We're just trying to 
say these people need actual medical <laughs> assistance. So is there any way to make that a, like a, a hierarchical thing? Because especially with if you think something like you have a you have a rhythmic signal mm -hmm. to breathing, so you could lock in on it's it's actually a really nice. Uh, signal for that, right? Because mm -hmm. you have a rhythmic thing, which a lot of the things will, will mm -hmm. presumably be ignored or not not uh, capture your filter right. piece, right? But then it seems like that you you could build up uh, as you zoom into the short term, because your filter is still doing a relatively short kind of thing. Whether you have a long term filter based on that as a pre processing thing that can really, I don't know. I mean, I guess it has to be non linear. To make it any different than a, a one-stage right. filter, uh, but if you, if you envision doing the same principle, kind of hierarchy. So, in the the concept down the pipeline, we're thinking along those lines. The challenge is, I think, on the ground is that sometimes um, because these recordings are from children, they actually withhold their breath; they're not breathing. So you can't rely on just that temporal yeah. pattern as your cue. And so there is you actually don't hear the the breathing; they actually just you know, withhold it, they're crying, and so that masks the whole thing. But in theory, that's really what we're thinking down the pipeline, is if we can identify the the, the sub-events, then we can go, actually, because that also helps in the diagnosis. Certain, you know, um, abnormalities occur more during the inspiration versus the expiration part, and so if we can go to that level of detail, that certainly would be advantageous, and that would require sort of a hierarchical processing with some non-linearity, obviously, but we're not there yet, but that's something that we're considering down the line. Okay, well, thank you very much, Monia, El Hilali, and um, thanks to you, Alfonso, and Todd, and this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.